It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Sims, and we have the whole crew here for this episode. Anthony Campolo. Dave Gant. And this is Lisette Sims. Today's topic, I think, is something that you will find absolutely fascinating. It's going to feel a little bit esoteric right at first. A little academic. A little bit. A little bit. I'm shocked. But I, I promise, I promise that will not last long, and you'll realize that what we're talking about is something that is, musically speaking, the air you breathe. It's all around you all it's the familiar. time. It's familiar. Okay, what are we talking about? <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> what are we talking about? The topic is from musique concrète to plunder phonics. And that's one one word, plunder phonics. Plunder phonics. So that is a title designed to make no one listen to what you have to say, right? <laughs> so let me explain what those two terms, let's, let's just unpack those two terms real quick. Musique concrète usually refers to, in a very narrow sense, a musical practice that uh, started in the late 1940s and went on for... Well, I, you know, a few decades, but it was really particularly active for about 10 years. And originated with French artists. Originally with French artists, yeah. Pierre, Pierre Schaefer. Pierre Schaefer, thank you very much. Very prominent in French culture uh, in a lot of ways, but was the first person really prominently to experiment with what he was able to do when magnetic tape became easily available. He was like the OG DJ. <laughs> Kind of. He was the first person prominently, influentially, to really start to experiment with recorded sound. And it was an important technological leap because tape allowed you to manipulate it in ways that previous recording technologies couldn't. So you could all of a sudden be able to slice it up and tape it back together or rewind it or speed it up, do lots of different physical manipulations to the recording medium. So not just recording sound, but manipulating it, sculpting it. This shift is really important, and this is the reason that we sort of bravely waded into this topic, no matter how esoteric it might seem, because for the first time ever in human history, cultural history, musical history, the process and means for creating music changed from, I have an idea, and I either perform it to you or write it down as a set of instructions, for you to then also perform, like everything up to 100 years ago, roughly, and certainly the last 60, 70 years, what we're talking about immediately uh, in this episode. Well, I mean, all sound that you heard was physical phenomena. You know, that's normally how sound would be, but for us as as common digital listeners and, and listening on recorded media all the time, it's kind of weird to think back to a time when you could only hear things when actual molecules of air got excited by physical actions that people took. Right, close enough for, for the sound to actually physically yeah. vibrate all the way over to you. Right. And now, and now we, can, we can grab those vibrations. Right, and so, that, so, so in the late 1800s, we started being able to capture sound. And then in the late 1940s, what we're, where we're starting, 1948 in particular, is like Anthony said, being able to manipulate that sound in ways that you'd never be able to make it behave in the physical world. The medium itself became the instrument because you were able to use the medium of the song 
and then chop it up into different pieces and use it in artistic ways. And I think it becomes a lot more about the quality of the sound itself rather than necessarily musical content. Prior to this, any type of music was thought of in just one way, that it was, you know, those instructions, that written music, that it had to be displayed in some sort of notation um, in order to be rendered real but in this case the focus was more on what kind of qualities of sound are we looking for and how can we weave those sounds together in a way that's interesting and new and so it's like the priority of music making even shifted and that's the rub right because music went from my job as a musician is to render a set of ideas to if i'm making the music i'm taking actual sounds actual things and putting them together so let's put some sounds on what we're talking about and a little bit of you get so it gets so mushy right when you talk about music too long without listening to it so this is the first piece of music concrete this is where we're starting and music concrete i should say means what you think it means concrete music meaning that it is fixed it's in no way changeable when the composer is done making it it's a recording it's not a set of instructions that a performer can interpret. A Beethoven symphony is open to interpretation and will sound different depending on the conductor and the musicians and every element, but this is something that's completely fixed. So we're going to hear exactly what Pierre Schaeffer made in 1948. The same exact thing he heard, we're going to hear, and this is the Etude au Chemin de Fer. So this is uh, made a song made out of all uh, train sounds. So that recording sounds like just kind of a weirdo rambling collection of sounds. Oh, I don't know. All of our heads were nodding. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. What's fascinating is if you give it a, a minute or two, you hear, I think, what Schaefer was going for. He was finding like a natural rhythm in the sounds and musical shapes in these found objects. And I do think that's something that recorded music has drawn out the emphasis on the groove, the beat. I mean, before this, I feel like there were rhythmic qualities and percussion instruments in music, but we didn't have the focus on really the groove of music. And that came, I think, with the beginnings of of recorded music. And I think he wants us to hear musicality that comes out of non-musical sources and sounds. He wants to draw out the musicality within the recordings he has and sculpt them into something that sounds good and is pleasing. How how sculpted is this sound? Did he simply arrange the tape through time or or was there any kind of modification being done to this tape? As far as I know, it was arrangements of uh, segments of tape. It was like okay. just really basic so literal cut and splice. It, which, yeah. by the way, I, I feel like it's important to note the kind of painstaking process that was because... It's actual tape. I think to Lisette's point, 
I wonder when you mention that, like you start to really see an, an emphasis on groove emerge, which certainly with sampling, which we're, we'll talk about as a big stage in the evolution of this, that's where the literal like beat, break beat comes from. But I wonder, uh, Schaefer would have been working with a reel-to-reel tape recorder and I wonder if the cycle of the reels like you start thinking in groove yeah right and well and, well, and train what, wheels what you're too. looking at <laughs> and I think that actually draws back to I mean before we had notated music which is kind of what we think of as music history is when music started to be written down when you go back even further I'm talking like tribal music and folk music. A lot of it was drawing on sounds from nature. When you think of like tribal drumming, to me, I think of like the sounds of thunder and things like that. And I feel like this has maybe come full circle. We've come back to that where we're really fascinated by just the sounds of real life. Yeah. And also, as you mentioned, Lissette, how process starts to influence product outcome. The fact that you can cut something up and do things with it. So like even in this very first piece, you hear him looping, right? Taking a sound and just looping it to make it sound kind of like it has a pulse or something. The train sound, the the sound of the wheels chugging on the track. And even that would have been astonishing to someone in 1948 because you'd never heard a sound behave that way. Not just like you say, Dave, literally sounds of that volume in that frequency space ever. Suddenly now we were making sound behave in ways that it couldn't physically you know from a a physical sound source yeah it completely fundamentally changes your creative perspective on your goal when you're creating your music in this way you didn't really have composers who were cutting measures out of sheet music that they loved and pasting them together and trying to come up with music that way i mean this is really a new way completely of conceptualizing composition and it actually bypasses the need for notation which is confounding to the practice of music up to the present day. Folk music wasn't written down because it was made by people who were not literate in music notation by and large. It was an oral tradition in that sense. It was passed down just by ear, by rote. This is not like that. It's not not written down just because it's an oral culture. We don't have a notation to write something like this down, but you don't need to because I'm making an artifact. I'm, I'm making a sculpture and I can just give you a copy. It only has to be done once. It doesn't have to be done a million, billion, jillion times for all eternity. (laughs) Right, like a Beethoven symphony. Especially now since it's all digitized. It used to be it was concrete in a way that was sort of reproducible, but you would have to actually copy it from tape to tape, which has a certain loss. But now when you're doing this, once we get closer to today, it's all ones and zeros. It's literally reproducible and it's been turned into pure information. That's a really good point, because when Schaefer called it concrete music, he was was not speaking metaphorically. He had literally sculpted a tape reel, and if you wanted that music, you had to bring a tape reel and hook it up and copy it over. We now use that word. I guess that's, that's the essence of the transition that we're going to follow here, is that concrete going from literally I'm referring to a thing I made, that's why I call it concrete, to as an idea, as an abstraction concrete music making music out of objects found objects to being not just concrete but infinitely reproducible oh yeah you play the uh, symphony pour homme seul Go, 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 go
So what did I just hear? <laughs> that was a piece from a year later than the first one we heard. It was by Pierre Schaefer and one of his protégés, Pierre Henri. And Henri went on to become very prominent himself in the world of concrete music and electronic music in various ways. But specifically, what was I hearing there? Is I, I heard a woman's voice. Was there a kid in there? What you somewhere? were listening to was a whole collage of sounds. So not a single or sort of unified palette of sound sources like Schaefer used initially in his first year or so of experimentation. By this point, year or two into it, the level of complexity has really increased exponentially, not just because they're using a much greater palette of sounds, but... But to your question about the first example, here you're actually hearing manipulations of the sounds themselves. Oh, we are. Interesting. Yeah. In what ways? In very basic ways. You're hearing them sometimes, they'll mess with the envelope of the amplitude. Or they will reverse sounds, which would have been absolutely shocking at the time. In fact, there's a great episode of the Young People's Concerts that Leonard Bernstein used to do. And he's doing a piece for tape and symphony orchestra. He's explaining to the audience, and it's all kids, of course, what a tape recorder can do. And it's fascinating because when I first saw the video, I thought, oh, yeah, I guess you had to explain this to people when it first (laughs) appeared. Because, you know, when I came into the world, it had already been around for several decades. He says to the kids, this is what sound does out in our physical world. But with a tape recorder, you can make a sound go backwards. And so then they would play a sound. They played a a vase shattering, I think. And then they played it backwards. A vase being created. Yeah. And my my being (laughs) being really quickly and spontaneously created. And this is the whole point of this little anecdote, because my favorite part of the video is they show the kids' faces as they react. And there is genuine bewilderment, shock, amazement, because no one had ever heard sound be made to behave in these ways. Yeah. And right away, like 1949, 1950, Schaefer and Henri are already starting to create fairly complex sound sculptures out of it. And I think it's also interesting that people like John Cage were trying to take that idea and create a live performed version of it. Oh, yeah, like the Williams mix you're talking about. Yeah, or like the living room music. Oh, yeah, Things yeah, like yeah. that, where he really tries to take the idea of using sounds from everyday life and combining that idea with written, instructed, notation music. It's Performed just, it's concrete interesting music. how he really tried to hybridize those ideas. We have a couple more examples of this couple of decades of development of musique concrète proper. We'll jump ahead a little less than a decade, 1958. This is the very famous composer in a lot of styles, Georgi Ligeti. 1958 created a piece called Articulation. Well, that was really cool. I like that one a lot. That piece was done with Stockhausen. 
Yeah, Carlein Stockhausen. Yeah. Yeah, that was done with his assistant Cornelius Cardu at the Studio for Electronic Music at the West German Radio, and it uses more of the synthesized electronic sounds that were also being done at the time. I think it's interesting to see that in some of those northern European countries like the Netherlands and Germany that you see their advancements in radio technology putting them in the foreground of music and technology coming together. And in material science too because it was a German company BASF that cracked the problem of what material to use for magnetic tape to make it mass producible and affordable and durable. And not kill people and not be poisoned because that old steel tape it could take limbs off heads off whatever so another interesting development in this concrete music i think is the american minimalist steve reich who started using a loop of speech patterns and discovered phase shifting because he was trying to sync up two copies of the same recording on two different tape decks but they ran at different speeds and as they slowly went out of phase he realized that they would create what he called the unintended psychoacoustic byproducts these sounds that would result from pattern a being played slightly faster than pattern a prime so you would hear those two patterns which are the same thing just out of phase in time temporarily displaced and so you get this really weird resultant pattern we'll play a first short clip that just shows you the actual bit of tape loop that he's using he began to warn the people he said after all it's gonna rain after all for 40 days and for 40 nights and the people didn't believe him and they began to laugh at him and they began to mock him and they began to say it ain't gonna rain this piece was done with a civil rights activist, Truman Nelson, who was supporting the retrial of the Harlem Six, six black youths arrested for committing a murder during the Harlem riot in 1964. So, so Reich took that clip and then he started looping it and the loop sounds like this. So what you're hearing is that loop being played simultaneously on two different tape decks. As they just loop over and over and over and over and over again, very slowly they move out of phase. Once they've moved out of phase for a while, it sounds like this. And then when you get even further down into this process, it stops sounding like his voice or the clip or the words that it started with at all. And again, there are no added sounds or added manipulation here. This is simply Steve Reich letting this process play itself out. And so the only thing you're still hearing is that original little clip. Okay, that's some trippy stuff. 
I think it's such a great piece. I love that. It's piece. really cool. I love that piece. And so already within the first twenty, so in that twenty-year arc of making concrete music, they went from I'm taking these sounds out of the world and I'm going to kind of arrange them in an intentional way to then I'm going to not only do that, but I'm going to manipulate the sounds themselves to I'm going to add electronic sound sources to Reich in the mid '60s being really fascinated with process that the mechanical implements allowed him to do. It would make sense that these artists would want to stretch out and find new things they can do because they were very aware that there's this new technology and there's new things being done in the academic world. And guys like Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney and John Lennon, they really wanted a piece of that. They wanted the cred. They wanted to make the music sound cooler and also just get to know these guys. They take these techniques and first John Lennon uses... Um, a lot of interesting effects on his voice and tomorrow never knows he had george martin and the engineer jeff emmerich to do all sorts of things to make him sound like the dalai lama singing on top of a mountaintop is what he wanted it to sound like so this is well i think also don't forget there are those tape loops because uh, paul mccartney had gone to a recital a, a music concrete recital proper and heard a bunch of this art music and was experimenting on his own trying to make tape loops and, and musique concrète. So he comes into the studio and he's got these weird bird call sounding things. And he, like, he goes to George Martin's like, can we like, you know, do something with this? And so he was like, well, we're working on this trippy track for John where the, the lyrics are from the, uh, Timothy Leary's book of the dead. Uh, yeah. The, uh, well, no, it's from the psychedelic experience, right? Which is Leary's, uh, psychedelic realization of the Tibetan book of the dead. Um, and, and I love that it starts with that turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream because it's such a, an epical moment. 1966, this track comes out, and it's, like you said, Lisette, it is concrete music on the most mass popular scale there could be because this track could not be reproduced in the physical world. Exactly. The Beatles had quit live touring because they wanted to just focus on the studio and all the new things and sounds that they could experiment with. And so this is what they came up with. I think it's pretty great that now we're having this coming together of the accessible sounds of the traditional rock band and then all of these crazy ideas that we've been talking about. But, I mean, it's not total sellout of it or cheesy popularization of it. I mean, they're really drawing on the origins of these sounds. You even hear the train sounds that we heard from Pierre Schaeffer's original piece, 
being kind of quoted in this. We benefit from the fact that the artists that were really experimenting with these ideas in the 60s were aware of where these ideas were coming from and were trying to do right by these ideas and push them forward and not just try to kind of steal them and No, they were becoming a part of their technique, their creative compositional process in a real genuine way, most definitely. Because it's like this track to me is... I mean, it's a great track and there's so many ways that it's interesting. But to me, one of the most interesting and why uh, I think it's a great example in this conversation is that it really shows a shift in compositional thinking because that Tomorrow Never Knows is not put together like a song would sort of normally be. It's not like a melody with a chord progression, a bass line, and it's it's not that kind of, it doesn't proceed from the abstract musical ideas. It's like there were layers, right? Like Anthony mentioned, you've got John's, this trippy voice timbre that John wanted to go for. You've got George Harrison coming in the studio, having studied Indian music going, hey man, I got this cool Indian instrument I want to come and play on this track. You've got Paul McCartney coming in and going, hey, I made some music concrete. I want to put these tape loops in our piece. So they're just layering these pieces that the various members of the band have brought in and and the thing that results is called a song but it wasn't like written or composed in any conventional way that we might normally think of that so it's more like mosaic art than a painting you know taking pieces of already made things and putting them together in a new way to create something completely original yeah it would be that process so they had putting all those individual pieces they would create all the pieces and then they would put them all together yeah and speaking of those pieces and the layers coming together it's a great way to describe good vibrations took the same idea where it wasn't just this one single stream of thought that kind of got embellished it was these individual pieces coming together to create a new whole What you're hearing there is just the studio backing track of Good Vibrations with the vocals taken out. There's a whole collection of the pet sounds and tracks around that era split up. It's really cool. It lets you hear how Brian Wilson was thinking about his composition of this song. He spent months and thousands of dollars in various studios working on this. He had to take different pieces from different rooms and smash it all together into this piece that he called a pocket symphony. So it sounds like 
maybe on first listening, if you don't listen too too closely, that it's just a standard band recording the song. But when you really listen to each individual instrument as each line progresses, they have these distinct qualities to them. And you can tell that, oh, this is not just a live recording of a band in one room. And from section to section in the music, too, the seams show. So like the opening verse, when it goes to the uh, first chorus, you can totally tell Feel the, the, shift. the acoustic space totally changes the airspace of the track totally changes and that's also like i said 1966 so this kind of like this practice of writing your song being a totally different part of the process than creating it in the studio not just recording it but using these concrete music techniques to create it came very quickly to dominate how we make recorded music. And that's what I was talking about at the top of this episode when I said it's like the air we breathe because this is how all, virtually all, unless it's live theater, live concert music, opera, something like that. So the vast majority of the music in our culture internationally is some variation on this concrete music. You hear it, I hear a couple of real popular examples where it's not the whole track, it's just a part of it. Hear a little easier how it proliferated. The opening to Money, 1973, Pink Floyd. Classic. So using the sounds of the cash register and so forth to make the groove that the bass line joins in on that's the heart of that track. Super cool and a great incorporation of concrete music techniques into more traditional songwriting and, and structure and practice. I feel like York's Cavalda strongly reminisces that feeling of money at the beginning. That's a great example too because it's more complex. It's more sounds it that she brings together. It takes the same idea then, right? but, yeah. but it unweaves them in the same way. Well, it's a factory worker so it's all these factory sounds that come together. I mean, it didn't actually use sampling, but it was mostly made up of those loops. It was just, I think, the first album that was a popular album from popular artists that was made up mostly, like, primarily of those found sounds where it didn't have a band behind it. And it's not sampling. It's mostly sort of serendipitous right. what they came up with. 
and this idea becomes so prominent in popular music that we end up having even entire albums created from this idea. Brian Eno and David Byrne coming together in 1981. On My Life in, in the Bush of Ghosts. It's an interesting album, sort of a classic uh, early 80s avant-garde album. It's mostly made up of either found sounds, so they just grabbed their own tape loops, or they made their own. And a lot of the effects that are most compelling about My Life in the Bush Ghosts are really the ones serendipitously came up in the studio because they weren't using samplers at this time still. They were just chopping up tape loops, and this one was made primarily of loops that they had chopped up together. And so all the vocals, for example, like there's no singer on any of these. They're all made from like sort of like news and, and previously found tapes. So it's mostly found sounds, really. fascinating to me how if you put a groove on something <laughs> listeners will accept really broadly imaginative sounds in a way that they wouldn't otherwise right Dave you mentioned this one a really popular album yeah it was pretty successful I mean for, especially for being such a weirder project two major names in the modern rock world at the time you know David Byrne and Brian Eno yeah it was, sold a lot of albums people were listening to this by the time we get to the early 1980s, these sounds are totally mainstream. These practices are totally at the heart of popular I mean, they had a certain practice. amount of novelty to them still, but yeah. Sure, but the next example I pulled, 1987, Whitney joins the Jams, the Justified Agents of Moo Moo. And this is an example of sampling what we think of sampling in musical composition proper, where you start to get big copyright battles and intellectual property battles. This was the first big black market dance track. The Jams, the Justified Agents of Moo Moo, took this Whitney Houston track and put it over their own music. Now, an important thing about this, just like with the Brian Eno and David Byrne, is they were still working with combining found material and original material in some way. I think the fundamental difference, though, is that it's not just found sounds that they're weaving into music. It's found music that they're creating new music from. This is Whitney Joins the Jams.
like Lissette said, it's it's. I mean, the the track starts off, and you're hearing lots of clips and bits from different things. But when the Whitney Houston song appears, "I Want to Dance with Somebody," it is recognizably a big chunk of that song. And I think that's kind of the big shift between music concrete and plunder phonics is that concrete music was just about sound sculpting and i think plunder phonics is more based on finding musical i guess quotes you could call them and weaving them together into new material it really pulls in the sense of nostalgia that people get from music that's such a huge part of our emotional attachment to popular music and popular songs is they make us think of certain places and times and memories that we have this really takes that and uses that as a type of artistic expression of taking these sounds that are familiar to us that we've heard over and over and over again and putting them in new contexts for me it's a it's a different kind of listening experience because you're enjoying this really cool sound collage that's going on with a great beat but then it's ringing all these bells of these tracks that you recognize and all your experiences you may have attached to that like you mentioned Anthony and it's interesting because it's not that far removed conceptually from what Schaefer was doing with train sounds I mean he was picking sounds that would resonate with everybody that were interesting and making his music out of it and like Lissette mentioned this is where the process of making concrete music and sampling tips over into plunder phonics which is one of my favorite musical terms of all times. The composer John Oswald coined the term in uh, 1985, I think, and it means what it sounds like. Phonics sounds plunder that you found and taken and pillaged from other places. You become a musical Viking and you (laughs) plunder the villages. And of course, it's an extra legal practice with regard to intellectual property and copyright law. Well, at a certain time it wasn't. Throughout the 80s when the Beastie Boys and the Bomb Squad were doing their sampling thing. It wasn't illegal yet, and that's why they were able to make those albums. And I think that's probably why it's called Plunder Phonics instead of Borrow Phonics. <laughs> <laughs> and Oswald, John Oswald, really was the one, I think more than any other artist, sort of conceptually focused what this practice is and certainly put a name on it. But we got an example of his music from 1989. His thing was that Plunder Phonics needed to come from a single musical source. You couldn't just pull from all over the world in this collage way that we heard the jams do. That's so picky. And I know. So this track, Dab, is all material from the Michael Jackson track, Bad, which is why the title is, get it. Oh, I see what they did there. I see what they did.
I, I, I was just expecting something more along the lines of bad, but clipped back together. And that was sort of more random than I had anticipated. A little more abstract. It wasn't quite as bad as bad. <laughs> I don't think it was random at all. I think there was a lot of clear intent. But what's fascinating to me is he created a piece only out of the track bad. And it doesn't sound anything like bad no. at all. I guess that's why I was disappointed. I, I wanted bad. No, I think that's kind of... listen to bad. <laughs> yeah, then listen to bad. I think that's Oswald's point. <laughs> and of course, being a composer, he is, uh, I think, more conceptually pure than maybe a commercially oriented artist typically would be. So he really, that to him was an important component of plunder phonics. But as it was practiced more widely, um, it was that kind of purity was not important. And I have an example from 1994. This is the first mashup that took two entire musical works, separate musical works, and put them together to create a new musical work. What we think of now in the quote unquote traditional sense of the term mashup. They made a music baby. This is Whipped Cream Mixes Rebel Without a Pause by the Evolution Control Committee. The rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling? You know it's time to get deep. The enemy telling you to hear it. They play the music, this time they play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show, but much the sound. I made a year ago, I guess you know, you guess I'm just a radical. Not on sabbatical, yes, to make it critical. The only part of your body should be part in two. Pass the power on the hour from the rebel to you. Radio, suckers never play me on the mix. They just okay me now, knowing they grow. When the clock in my phone is no sticking and taking everything that the brother owns. Huh. My calling card, recording and audit, supporter of Chesamar, loud and proud, kicking live next door to free So that's Public Enemy and uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Good old Chuck D. That I could nod my head to. Right. Which, and when? That's starting to come into the territory that now we're most familiar with that we're swimming in yeah. yeah this is the water we're swimming in and it's fascinating to me because you're if you know either one of those pieces of music you're kind of part of the, your brain that's going man i love that track is is ringing but it, because it's such a radically different thing to have those two things put together and i feel like that actually is a strength in the people who are well known for their plunder phonics is the more dissimilar you can make your musical quotes the more entertaining it is for your audience That's part when you of their put skill. them together exactly how, yeah how the random more are the because things if they're already too similar in style or whatever it's it's a little less impressive than if you take two things that no one ever would have thought of together and and, make and, a cool and thing. deliver yeah those two tracks really show the two extremes of the different schools of thought you can take to this. You can think of a whole song, like a whole rap verse, and stick it with a whole backing track like we just heard. Or you can go like John Oswald did and completely tear it all apart, make it into tiny musical chunks that are manipulated in all sorts of ways. And this next thing that we're going to listen to strikes a bit of a mid-ground there where it's Danger Mouse taking Beatles songs making them somewhat recognizable, but also chopping them up in other ways and putting Jay-Z on top to make the Grey album, which exploded this style of music making. Awesome.
If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the cat patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cask is closed. Rap critics to say he's money cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid, what type of facts are those? If you grew up with hoes in your zapper toes, you celebrate the minute you was having dope. I'm like, fuck critics, you can kiss my whole asshole. If you don't like my lyrics, you can press fast forward. I beat with radio, if I don't play they show, they don't play my hits. Well, I don't give a shit, so rap mags try and use my black ass. So advertise to give them more cash for ads. Fuckers, I don't know what you take me as. So understand the intelligence that Jay-Z has. I'm from rags, the richest niggas, I ain't dumb. I got 99 pounds, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. 99 pounds, but a bitch ain't one. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 pounds, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. Yeah, it's 94. 2004, and that was all material from the Beatles' White Album and Jay-Z's The Black Album, hence the name The Graham. Never sold, because it's hugely illegal, but millions of copies downloaded and, and traded all over the internet. 2004. Speaking of illegal... Girl Talk also has taken this idea and really, Same I think... Same business model of not selling it. Yeah, exactly. Just releasing just it. Just putting it out there. Girl Talk makes his music by touring and yeah, performing live. selling out wherever he goes. But I do think Girl Talk takes this idea and brings it to... It's, it's apotheosis. Yeah, because it's so dense. It's so well, rich. Like, like Anthony said on the Grey album, you hear Danger Mouse took for the beats. He took he would take one song per beat. He didn't mix the songs, but he would chop them all up to make beats out of that material. And so while you have these two kind of main, like an A and B layer where it's a vocal so delivery and a familiar up, you you track underneath, there's also these kind of, I guess, like it's pieces of confetti thrown about in that music. Like I said, I think Girl Talk really takes this idea and so dense. There's so much music that he puts into just the tiniest moment. It's It blows me away so how much he can quote. using two in, tracks. Yeah. He's using like all the tracks. All the, yeah, all the music. <laughs> No love for them, nigga, breaking hearts No keys, push to start If Casey Kasem made beats that's girl talk. <laughs> okay, so there are two things I have in reaction to that example. The first is 
an elaboration of something I mentioned earlier about how different this listening experience is, because especially with Girl Talk, because like you said, Lissette, it's such a complex tapestry of stuff that he breaks apart and uses to And read. this example is just his basic level. This isn't even him at I, his right. We're still learning most the game. dense. So I have the experience when I listen to this music of the various recognitions. Oh, that's from that. Oh, that's from that. Oh, that. so that's one kind of a find and seek part of the listening experience. And then the second part of that is that how they sound together. Then you get the, after the shock of recognition, you hear the interesting ways in which these are laid together. And that's fascinating in its own way. The second reaction I have listening to it is that totally, totally sincerely, I think there is a through line intellectually from Pierre Schaeffer, the origin of musique concrète as a really serious academic musical practice to this. And so I'm not really, I'm not joking when I say it's the apotheosis of this practice. And it's so rooted in the popular sphere because the tools for doing it are so accessible now that once the idea spreads so quickly that now we don't have to cut tape anymore. We don't have to cut, yeah. And everybody's doing it. Like the ideas are, are super common. What really is an esoteric practice and some fairly complicated musical ideas. It's we're at a couple of levels of meta with regard to how you think about musical creation at this point. 2010, that girl talk example. And now it's maturing into, Dave, this was your example, 2015, Bustin'. <laughs> like, this one's different. Tell us about, tell us about this one. This is like <laughs> because another Because it's the level. best song ever written. Well, but it's, um, no. it's another evolution of, I think... <laughs> Plunderphonics. I just sort of wanted to mention about girl talk. Um, we can we can splice things around because because it's speech concrete. Or you could just um, talk about it and then talk about it. I, I was just gonna say, kind of like the appeal of girl talk to me is that a person who doesn't listen to any albums ever can listen to girl talk and be like, oh, I know that track. I know that you would only have had to listen to top forty radio, and so it's it's very inclusive. I guess that's all I want to say. Oh yeah, Bustin. So I, I said that the best version episodes back of the Ghostbusters theme is the one that's I, uh, I Need a New Drug and Ghostbusters together. But my favorite line has always been, Bustin' makes me feel good. Because it, it make that line makes me feel good. And and this this genius, what's his name? Who's this guy? It is a Neil Cicieriga. Yeah, Cicieriga. Uh, has taken, the, I mean, it's just, it's like he, it's like this guy sat down and like, I want to make a song for Dave Gant. And so what did he do it. in the song? You cut up Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters theme and then make all the best possible jokes from rearranging the lyrics and the best beat you possibly could. But just let, let's listen to it. Is this all the Ghostbusters theme song only? Yeah, I, as far as I know. So this is pure plunderphonics. Yeah, I don't hear pure, anything that's not pure. from Ghostbusters. All right, here we go. 2015, pure plunderphonics. something's strange, sleeping in your bed. Let me something weird sleeping in your bed. Let me tell you something. makes me feel good.
I think that takes it to another level of meta where it's very self-referential. It's playing on your expectations of what you expect the Ghostbusters song to be, and he knows you've heard the Ghostbusters song. Now, this practice is just everywhere. Neil Cicierga is a particularly adept uh, creator in this mode, but you're hearing stuff, just people are having a ball with this now. One of my favorites is I Really Like a Hole. It's Carly Rae Jepsen and Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Finally, a Nine Inch Nails song the whole family can enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) What I love about it, though, is that the craft, the technique, is continuing to evolve. People just dumping this stuff on YouTube and all over the place. This isn't just like, ha-ha, I took a Carly Rae Jepsen track and smashed it together with a Nine Inch Nails track in GarageBand. The tracks were disassembled, and the parts were put together to make it sound like this is a... Carly Rae, Trent Reznor duet. And I think that's the thing. People are appreciating the the artistic creativity in how these things are being put together. I mean, because anybody can take two songs that sound cool and smash them together, sure. But it's how are you doing that? Are you doing it in a thoughtful and imaginative way? Take a second now here at the end of the episode and look back and think how far in half a century we came from music being a practice of having ideas writing it down in notation, which is a set of instructions, and giving it to performers to recreate in physical space. That's the only way we could get music um, or some variety of that. To now all (laughs) of this. Every sound and anything you can think of to do to it, you can do to it. So to close out, the example that we chose is something that a guy who calls himself DJ Earworm has been doing for years now. You may have heard it. The United States of Pop. And he releases it in mid-late December every year. And it's a collage of, what is it, the top, Billboard top? All the um, top songs of the year. Top however X number of songs, I don't remember. So Usually 40. Yeah, it's kind of an anthropological uh, snapshot of that year in uh, popular music. Not just pop proper, but popular music. So this is last year's, the most recent edition from 2015 of the United States of Pop from DJ Earworm. Ooh, ooh, just please. I love it. 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 I love it.
That's 50 songs. 50 songs that were popular in 2015. I think something that's so great about this style of music is that it's just an endless well. I mean, the more music that we're creating every single year creates more content that can be used for all of this. And so it's just never going to get old because we're always making more new music that we can put together in cool ways. And the frame of reference gets wider and wider and exactly. wider because the internet. Isn't that just the story? It's of the life? explanation for most things. Yeah, everything days, in life. Right, I guess we're done here then. Our job here All is right, done. All right, outro. What are we using for the outro? Something. Pick something. We can use this one. Get, get back, back, turtle, your shoulder, your homie holding position in the kitchen with soda.